Coming up on Office Hours with Carp and Loge, we talk about the timing of the Biden speech. We talk about what is going on at CNN. And Peter tries to get me to watch a soccer show. It's worth your time. Welcome back, people of the pod, to season three, episode two of Office Hours with Carp and Loge. I, as always, or most of the time, and Peter Loge, your co-host, an associate professor, I don't know what it means either, an associate professor in the School of Media and Public Affairs at the George Washington University and a strategic communications consultant. And I'm joined, as I am always, by... Dave Farb. <laughs> I'm always me. I'm an associate professor in the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University. And I am very curious, Peter, who are you when you're not you? That's a complicated question. I'm reading I'm reading The Book of Disquiet by Pessoa. Fascinating book. It's a topic for a different conversation, maybe maybe a therapy session. But um, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Tune in for the bonus episode <laughs> where we do therapy for Peter Lowe. That's what this is that's what this is all about. I do want to before we get rolling, I want to thank the people who've been rating us on, on Apple. Uh, we're up to 12 ratings, which is yeah, technically double digits, so keep them coming. Um, and also to somebody who's been watching us on YouTube, uh, sent in a very nice note saying he doesn't agree with us politically, but he really likes our analysis and thinks we try to play it straight, which is terrific to hear, so thank you. Other people, read, follow, rate, say nice things. Um, you know, we need we need affirmation from the void, people. So Because so if he doesn't that. get it, more therapy. More therapy, which means more podcasts. We're going to talk about people behaving their incentives in this episode, and this is what we're kind of getting to now. Affirmation from the void. Right, so uh, how are you, Dave? It's the new semester. How are you doing? It's good. Still writing on Substack a lot, trying to figure out the rhythm of writing while also prepping every class and responding to student emails. Uh, I am, as always, very tired. And tell, talk about it. So plug the Substack early. Where can people find you in the sub? DaveCarp.substack.com. I'm writing about one post per week. Last week, I complained about the Oberlin College Gibson's Bakery lawsuit uh, and how people like Barry Weiss keep on getting it wrong and should keep my alma mater's name out of their goddamn mouths. It's a lot of fun. So he's ranting about his alma mater. The boy, my alma mater, on the other hand, had a, uh, we're recording this on a Tuesday, and last night had a, uh, a regional alumni club meeting, which some people also call the Emmys. I think two dozen Emerson College alumni were up for Emmys last night and a handful one. So you rant about your alma mater, I rant about mine. What do you want to talk about? So I want to start off, it's, it's been two weeks, and so this now feels like ancient history. But I, I feel like we should start by talking a bit about that Biden speech that was on the Thursday before Labor Day. And it was billed as a big national speech. I thought it was a good speech. The background ended up drawing a lot of art criticism because uh, they had kind of a red, white, and blue background. But if you did a close shot, it was a red dot background. I mentioned to my students that like, if this is Star Wars, he's definitely not Rebel Alliance in that shot. Like that, that there was a Palpatine vibe in those narrow shots. So like, okay, we can art criticize, but it was a good speech that was trying to make a distinction between MAGA Republicans who aren't just hard right, but have decided that democracy is a problem because sometimes they don't win and so we shouldn't have it. And normal Republicans who are just radical on social issues and economic issues. And so he's trying to draw that dividing line. It's a hard divide to draw because this is coming after Liz Cheney has lost her primary. And if you look up and down the ranks of Republican leadership, there are very few people who are non-MAGA Republicans and haven't gotten primaried. So he's more trying to make an appeal to the Republican masses who still fondly remember the Bushes and the Reagans 
and who maybe want to stand up against their own party. I think that's an important speech to make. The one thing that I want to note, the reason why I think its effectiveness was kind of blunted is that it was just kind of on a random Thursday. And it's not a fully random Thursday. The, re the reason why they gave the speech when they did is it's the last Thursday before Labor Day. And if you don't want it to be viewed entirely as a political speech, then it's got to be before the traditional start of election season. I feel like they scheduled this speech when they did because they wanted to avoid it coming after Labor Day. The trade-off there is usually a, a pre president's national addresses are happening in, in, in response to some tragedy that's already at top of mind for people um, or something big happened. Like the, the national address that I remember most is the random Sunday well over a decade ago now uh, the random Sunday where word came down that Barack Obama was going to be addressing the nation in like an hour. And I remember hearing that and thinking like, okay, they, they're either going to tell us that they just killed bin Laden, or they're going to tell us that an asteroid is about to hit the United States. There, there's only two explanations for why you would be giving the national address out of nowhere. And it was bin Laden or like we're all doomed. And this, and like more recently, the national addresses are almost always, there was another mass shooting. The nation is in mourning. Let's pay attention. This didn't have that anchor point of why do this right now? What's the, what's our attention focused on? Instead, they were doing it on a random Thursday or a Thursday before Labor Day because their choice was do it on a Thursday before Labor Day or go into election season never having sounded the alarm. So I'm glad they sounded the alarm, but I felt like the impact was muted just because they didn't have that moment to respond to. Like it just, like they had to do what they could with what they had. I think that makes a lot of sense. There are two things I want to know. One is minor and one is one is more to your point. The first is the Biden approach here is a smart one for the, the strategic communications people need to embrace, which is find a way to let people agree with you, mm -hmm. right? If all Republicans are always bad, you're never going to depress Republican vote and, and Republicans are going to use it as they are actually in the MAGA stuff now to, to gin up support. So you have to say, look, we disagree with you, but those other people are crazy. You're not crazy we just have a policy disagreement. So you've got a car, so Biden's trying to carve out space to isolate people he know are gonna exist and, and, and raise money against him and run against him, but then let other Republicans say, yeah, you know what? We're pro-life, we want lower taxes, but we think January 6th was an attempt to overthrow democracy. We want Trump to shut up and go away, right? So he's trying to carve out a space for an opposition to exist, right? Mm -hmm. And that's an important thing to do in a strategic communications campaign. Right, find ways to let people agree with you, or at least not disagree with you as vocally to kind of neutralize it. And I, I think you're right about the, the random Thursday, but I also want to, to, to suggest that it's not only the one speech, right? If everything had been humming along happy with puppies and rainbows, and then Biden on a Thursday says, giving a speech about democracy, you know, that would be weird. But we go through the spring with January 6th hearings, right? Mm -hmm. And earlier in the podcast, I think back in season one, check it out. On the archives people back in season one you know are people going to pay attention will they pay enough attention will this matter and i think both of us agree that people ought to pay more attention than they probably will turns mm -hmm. out people have been paying a little bit more attention there's january 6th the fbi goes into mar-a-lago i think we can all agree that on balance it's better to not have your home raided by the fbi and better not to have top secret documents like lying around right then there's this speech that the that biden gives then there are going to be more January 6th hearings, and then there are going to be more indictments. So it's part of this, this narrative, like this six, eight-month narrative that a handful of people are undermining democracy and threatening our democracy, right? So the speech, can, we can look at it in isolation, but I think it's important to look at it in the context of a broader narrative campaign. 
and I think that's right. What I would say is, and, and again, the, the main theme here is you do with what you can with what you have. It, it's not as though they can go back, run history twice and say, all right, we're going to have another event that we're going to have this speech around. But I feel like this type of speech, this communications moment resonates longer and has, I think, bigger impacts if it's connected to a major reveal related to January 6th, if it's connected to, I don't think he could have connected it to the rating of Mar-a-Lago. I don't think he got that. I don't believe he actually got that heads up. But something related to a reveal with Mar-a-Lago, something related to a reveal with January 6th, even connected to Liz Cheney just lost her primary and that was a punishment by MAGA Republicans of hell, like the Cheney family. Choose one of choose some other moment where it's a little clearer why now, because part of what also goes on in the speech is since there there actually aren't a lot of non MAGA Republicans, at least in leadership, and that means that you're talking to the public and saying, look, we know that you keep voting for Trump and all the Trump supporters, even though you don't love them, but hey, maybe make a different cho- choice because they're not kidding. That becomes hard to do when it's a random Thursday, because as he's talking about the things that MAGA Republicans are trying to do, he's also including a bunch of policy stances like taking away a woman's right to choose, which those non-MAGA Republicans are like, wait, well, I'm, I'm actually totally good with that. I don't want women to have a right to choose, but also, hey, let's have elections that just like to win a lot. Like, So that gets fuzzy as well. Whereas if he's anchored to, like, it doesn't even have to be Liz Cheney, like anchor it to the victory of some Republican Secretary of State candidate in a primary that really signals, like they have stated for the record that if they win, doesn't matter how people vote in 24, Trump will get those votes. Because they are having those drumbeats. I think that's when you hit the big symbol. They, they didn't have that moment, so they did it before Labor Day. I'm glad they did it rather than not doing it at all. It would have been a bigger impact moment if they had something to anchor to. And I think that's absolutely right. But the, the... I think you now run into sort of the realities of how comms works, right? Both of us mm-hmm. teach communications and how one ought to do it and the symbolism of the red background of the blue background, and you have a dove fly over and then the rainbow over Buckingham Palace. That's it's usually not how it goes, right? Usually, you know, you're lucky if somebody orders lunch on time. Think, mm-hmm. look, we've got to do this speech. I don't know. I don't know. We're doing a thing. Biden's distracted. I don't know. We've got to do the speech. Somebody finally says, fine, do the damn speech. Pick a time. Okay, how about Labor Day? You can't do Labor Day. Kick off elections. I don't know. Thursday. Fine. Right, is often how it goes. Or is there a hook? We can't do Cheney. I don't know. We missed the window. And you kind of do it when you do it. Yeah. Right. And at some point you just kind of do it to have done. And that's that's like in the grind of campaigns, of issue campaigns. And certainly uh, I was, you know, briefly in the Obama administration, certainly like you plan as much as you can, but like there's the day-to-day grind of reality that determines a lot of the calendar. Right. And now at least with the speech, you get to drop in lines from it. Biden gets to repeat it. He was in Pennsylvania anyway. He was campaigning for Democrats in, in Pennsylvania, teed up the speech a few days ahead of time, raised a bunch of money. There's a bit of the Pennsylvania bounce there. Now you can make this part of the underlying story of, you know, the Arizona Senate race, the Ohio Senate race, the races in Pennsylvania, all the election deniers winning Republican primaries, some with Democratic help all over, all over the country. So now it exists yeah. as a thing that can be deployed. So I think you're right, but you know, if you work in campaigns, you're usually just kind of doing the best you can at the moment you got. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's all it's all a mess. You are doing the best you can with what you have. That said, though, I also think it's important, and I, I know we can, I don't know if there's a, 
a connection here to, to CNN or not, but the mm -hmm. idea that, that people are vocally and politically standing up for just core tenets of representative democracy, right? Just even if it's not ideal, even if it may not work, we talked about this again months ago about, about January 6th, like even if it's not gonna move a single vote, it's important to be on the record as saying, uh, democracy matters, lying about elections is bad for democracy, like be a partisan for democracy. Right. And regardless of anything else, as you said, it was an important speech to have given, just so you're on the record of saying, you know what, this this stuff matters, and we're going to try to make a big deal of it, whether or not anyone's listening. Yeah, you got to try. Yeah. Yeah, I do think that's a good segue over to what's going on at CNN, which I want to yell about for a couple minutes. Go, go, um, go. Look, yelling about CNN is a thing that has been a hobby of mine for a long time. Back when my blog was an actual blog instead of a Substack, uh, I think I once called CNN the uh, shiny objects network. So like MSNBC was the left, Fox News was the right, uh, CNN was just shiny objects. This was, I mean, this was forever ago. This was back when they had, I think it was Wyclef Jean on election night, they had him come in as a hologram to talk about election results. And it was like, first of all, Wyclef Jean. Second of all, why a hologram? Like you weirdos. And it was clearly like, here are funny shiny objects, please tune in. Things have gotten different at CNN pretty fast. Brian Stelter was just laid off. Uh, John Harwood was just laid off. They are basically getting rid of everybody on staff, everybody on air who has been sharply critical of Trump. And the backstory there that I think our listeners need to know about um, is that the reason this isn't just normal CNN stuff or rearranging deck share stuff is Discovery just bought Time Warner. They bought it with a whole lot of debt, and that is leading them to now scramble around and ruin a lot of their properties. I've complained online and on Substack about this, but not on our podcast. One of their properties is HBO Max, and one of the things they've done in order to save money on HBO Max is get rid of 200 Sesame Street episodes. Let me say this on air as well. David Zasloff, if you take down Sesame Street, I will street fight you. Because <laughs> I've never thrown a punch, but like... You do, as a parent of two small children, you do not mess with Sesame Street, sir. H, like HBO Max is, things are getting dark there. And the reason they're getting dark is because of the merger. And with the merger, they've got all this debt that they now need to service. What's gone on in the CNN side of it is they have a new boss named, I think it's Chris Lick. He and David Zasloff uh, both look up to a guy named John Malone, who's a cable titan from like the 70s through the 90s uh, and was a big Trump donor. And basically they're trying to figure out like, how do we satisfy our bosses? This has set off a chain reaction where now every person who likes being on air at CNN is trying to show off for the new bosses that they can be as like really, really critical of the Biden administration while saying nothing about Trump. Uh, and we saw this in response to the, the um, Biden speech where like, sure, the optics of two Marines behind him aren't ideal. Like there've been Marines behind speeches in the past. It, it's not actually like any sort of record setting, but like, sure, not a great image. And you're allowed to tweet about images that you don't like. But they tried to turn it into like a three day, a five day story about how, you know, this undermined his whole message and is the most dangerous thing we've ever seen. Like it was pathetic from actual news people. And the way to understand it is that these aren't news people trying to focus on what's the most important thing. These are news people trying to perform for the new boss because the new boss is in there making changes and cutting costs and you don't want to get cut. 
I think, I mean, all of that makes sense. And there are a couple of, I've got my own little streaming rant I'll give at the end, because if nothing else, it'll, it'll make you fussy. And, and that's kind of fun for me to do, but we'll come to that. That's like a teaser. <laughs> One of the things you see it at CNN, which is, which has always been, which has been a bit of a mess for a long, long time is the journalists want the same thing that politicians want. And it's the same thing you and I want, and that's to keep our jobs, right? And to keep your job, you do what the boss wants. And you could say, well, I'm going to hold my ground. I'm going to stand true. And then you turn around, you got kids, right? You, they need orthodontia or bail money or therapy. I don't know, whatever it is. I don't have children, whatever it is. They seem expensive and time consuming. My two-year-old and five-year-old and you're going to bail money? Well, I don't know. I don't know what kind of parent you are. Just, I just want to make sure that our listeners know that you really don't know. Anyway, I, I have no idea. I, your children, I'm sure, are lovely. They're great children. They're speaking complete sentences in several months. They speak Russian with a French accent to steal a line from an old beer commercial. I'm talking about everybody else's children, not our listeners. I like their children. I'm going to stop digging myself in this hole. Look, the point is people are behaving. They're doing things to keep to keep their job. Right? They want their job. They figure, if I keep my job, if I say these absurd things, by the way, hologram of White Cliffs on, super cool. I'm not sure why it's news, but it seems super cool. Like, well, I'm gonna say these things to keep my job and then on the back end, I'll fix it. Oh, the next time I'll do better about journalism, right? Or if I don't do this, they're gonna find somebody else who will come in who has no integrity and, right? The candidates do the same thing. I think Trump is, you know, he's several clown cars worth of clown carness, but, if I cross him, I'll lose my seat and then somebody worse will come in or, you know, a Democrat will come in and at least I'm getting tax cuts and judges, right? And in classrooms, you do this in every job. Yeah, I'll do this one thing because if it weren't for me, somebody else, we behave the ways to keep our jobs. And that's what CNN, you know, talents are, are, are doing. Um, the challenge is there's a whole lot more at stake. Right. And that's like, I think, and I agree with, with Jay Rosen and others who've said, you know, journalists ought to be partisans for democracy. They should not be partisans for, you know, McConnell or Schumer or Biden or DeSantis, but they need to be partisans for democracy. You got to take a stance and say, yes, our system of government, as flawed as it is, is better than virtually every alternative. And it will only continue to improve if we continue to be more democratic. Autocratic backsliding is bad. And I think, I just think you have to be willing to say that and say that out loud. I think that's right. And, the, and just the point that I really want to make is like, yes, they're, they're behaving their incentives. I think we also need to keep in mind as we move into an election season, they're always behaving their incentives. Their incentives have just changed in a weird way that is not that, that is for once not about partisan politics. It's about like mergers and acquisitions and the downstream consequences thereof. It is a real mess. And Politico also just got bought too by a guy who the news reports I'm seeing uh, are like, he also really kind of likes Trump. That's two of the, the major mainstream political outlets probably just got a Trumpist slant just because of the, the rich people buying stuff, not even because of traditional politics. That's gonna make the defense of democracy a little harder at a time when it's not very helpful. Well, let's then talk about, yes, all of these things are true. We're talking about this before we came on air. If there's not a solution, I'm not interested in the problem. We're strategic communications people. We teach Stratcom. What's the campaign solution? You're not going to be running a organized campaign over the next two months because everything's about the elections the next two months. 
I do think that what you can do is a bunch of response work, which is exactly, in a sense, exactly what we're doing right now, which is it's actually very useful to yell about it because this is about mergers and acquisitions and about, hey, how are we gonna finance the data and make sure that CNN works? If all of these moves towards Trumpism to satisfy the boss are also leading to a set steady stream of people who would usually be paying some attention to CNN being like, oh my God, what a trash fire. Like what's the point, what a trash fire. That's gonna lead to some internal stakeholders who don't love what's going on to say, you know, we gotta tone that down a little bit because I know you want to look fair and centrist, but right now you just look embarrassing. Well, but it's also though then about viewers, right? I mean, ultimately yeah. it's, I mean, these, these are for-profit industries that bought with debt. So somebody's gotta be making money on this, right. right? And so that's also up to people who think that good reporting matters to pay for content, right? You can't just free ride, you can't watch and just complain, right? If, if money doesn't change hands, then it doesn't because the incentives are skewed, right? Journalists have an incentive professionally to be truth tellers or to learn things or all sorts of things. If you're in, if you're a mergers and acquisitions person and you're carrying a ton of debt, your incentive is to ditch that debt. And you do that however you can. Yeah, that's right. But in the next two, again, in the next two months, like you're not gonna do an advertiser boycott. You're not gonna do a like everybody like boycott CNN thing. What you're gonna do mostly is take a string of pearls set of stories where like CNN keeps on embarrassing itself and treat it as a laughing stock because the new boss is going to behave by his incentives too and while he wants to be able to say like look how fair and centrist we are now he does not want to be known as just the laughing stock so I think that's how you hit him. No I think that makes a lot of sense too you get producers you get you get on-air talent to just because they have to go to dinner parties and they're going to dinner parties with people who are making fun of them pull them aside and go look I've known you for a long time what are you what are you doing? Yeah. Like, this is not, you know, and they read their social media follows and they pay attention to all of this stuff. You create, make it easier and more comfortable and more rewarding to be less awful than more awful. Yeah. Right. And it's often moving those, those little bits. Uh, I want to talk about two, uh, a couple of other quick things before we, before we get out of here. I want to raise a nerd question and get your strategic communications take on it. Schedule F employees. For fans of the podcast. That is a nerd question. Well, I'm a nerdy guy. I'm a nerdy, I, you know, I'm a nerdy guy. Look at all the books. This must mean I'm a nerd. The, um, Are you ever going to remember that podcasting is uh, an oral medium and not a visual medium? The fan mail, the fan letter one we got was on, was about YouTube. So somebody, I just want to point to our uh, listeners. This is Peter Loge performing his incentives. If you send him a fan letter, <laughs> he will do whatever you tell him to do. Yes, I need aff I need affirmation yeah. from the void. We've been through this. This was at the top of the show. I'm shallow. This we've, we've, we've been there. We've like, come on. Schedule F. Stay on focus. Stay on message. Schedule the point F. is, schedule F. There are a whole lot of federal employees. Uh, I don't know, millions of them. And they postal service and the park service and the military and border patrol, lots and lots of federal employees. The president appoints about four, can appoint about 4,000 of them, cabinet secretaries, assistant secretaries, special assistants, things like that. Some agencies have a lot of uh, political appointees, some have very few. When I was at the FDA, I think there were five of us, including the commissioner out of 22,000 uh, employees. Towards the end of his administration, Trump 
created a new Schedule F category. And he said that anybody who falls within this category, I can hire and fire at will, they're at will employees. And it ended up being about 50,000 people. Very few, most agencies simply ignore the rule. Biden then rescinded the executive order the moment he came into office. A lot of Democrats and a lot of good government people are concerned that if a Republican gets elected president, he's going to reinstate this executive order and you're going to have, you know, 50,000 really senior people basically as political operatives um, in senior positions in major important agencies. The House has passed legislation to prohibit this. Uh, the legislation is now, there's, there's legislation in the Senate. How does this bill to ensure protection of civil servants pass us an evenly split Senate? It's passed the House. How does it get from the Senate to the president's desk between now and the end of December? So yeah, I think this is, this is the type of issue, like th- this is representative of a big set of issues, which are deeply important and kind of boring. Well, you, this, is, this, is, this has echoes of what you raised earlier, the Supreme Court ruling on the administrative state. Right, yeah. And like, let, let's be clear, what Trump was trying to do was weaponize the administrative state by saying all of these uh, civil service professionals are going to be political appointees, that it can be a patronage system. Uh, and this was the United States government in the 19th century, where like new, new party gets elected, all of the postal officers are people who work for the, that party. Like it was a patronage system where you part your party gets elected, you get all the good government jobs that, uh, the good paying government jobs that come with that. Back to there so that everyone who is in any part of government is a Trumpist who will do Trumpist things. That's bad. That makes government work way worse. So we should be pissed about it. I'm glad that this bill exists. It's also not going to be the national rallying cry in the year of our Lord 2022. My hunch is the way that you do it. And you're going to need a little bit of luck to pass it, right? Because you're not right now going to get 10 Republican senators to say, yeah, you know what? I really oppose uh, what the Trumpists are doing. We need an effective civil service because one thing that we Republicans love is government that works well and is big enough to function. Um, That's not really on brand for them, right? So this is not a stand that they're going to take right now. What I think you probably do is hope that November goes well in the Senate, uh, the Democrats pick up a couple of seats so that they're clearly going to be in charge in the next election anyway. And then if November goes well for Democrats and Republicans are looking at it saying, okay, now we need to start really thinking about 2024. Trump is an albatross around our goddamn necks and we need to start doing something about that. That is when during the lame duck, you say to them, hey, look, it's not the sexiest thing in the world. We know that it's a bit of a political hit for you because the Trump is screaming mad. But if it's time for you to start picking a fight with them, can a few of you please side with us on making sure that people who work for government aren't just all partisan appointees? We need 10 of you for this. And it's still going to be hard. Like you're not going to win this with a big comms campaign. You're not going to make this the central issue for America. What you're going to do is hope that November goes well and then try to make this a proxy for the internal fight between Trumpists and other Republican electeds who are saying, hey, you know, it's not that, it's not even that they're anti-authoritarian. They just, it's time for them to pick up a bit of a fight because they're losing too much. I think that's the only way to have a chance. I, I, think, I think that makes sense. I'll throw in a couple of other things. One, I think it's absolutely a lame duck strategy because nothing's going to happen between now and the election, especially because 10 Republicans are going to be hopefully moved over for marriage equality. 
They're not going to cast that vote and then say, now you want me to go to bat for bureaucrats? No, there's simply no political upside in that and a lot of political downside, a lot of policy upside, a lot of political downside. So to be during lame duck and you can sort of name the Republicans, right? I imagine Senator Romney would be on board with this because he's, he's an institutionalist. He comes from a political family. He knows the value of civil servants. He represents a state with a lot of civil servants in it that rely on the economy. The second thing I would suggest is right now, a lot of the messaging I've seen is from unions and uh, Partnership for Public Service, which is a terrific organization talking about the hardworking civil servants. Good messaging, important to do. I would also talk about jobs. A lot of these civil servants live in and work in Colorado, Utah, certainly Virginia and Maryland, which is why the Virginia and Maryland delegations are on board. This is a jobs issue, right? The other thing I think I would do to, to your point is I would make it difficult and uncomfortable for Republicans. So you know what, if we don't get on board with this now, we're simply gonna keep raising. Why do you want big donors to run scientific agencies? Why do you want big donors to be in charge of national security? Why do you want your golfing buddy to be in charge of? So you play the patronage angle. Locally, you play the jobs angle. And the other thing I would do, it's not a big outside comms game. This isn't a national campaign. This isn't, you know, bus ads and Twitter hashtags. Um, this is, I think, a clever policy entrepreneur finding good government advocates, local jobs advocates, maybe the chamber, some insiders, pulling a handful of targeted members aside and going, this is nuts. Let it ride through, the, through NDAA, which is where it is now, defense authorization. Just let it go through. No one will notice. Trump will yell and scream. He doesn't want the policy win. He wants the yelling and screaming win. That's fine. And then hope like hell he's not your nominee because nobody wants him to be your nominee. You're afraid of him being your nominee in the Republican side. Representative democracy certainly doesn't want him to be the nominee. I think there's some Democratic candidates who are like, yeah, bring him on. I mean, it's never cracked more than 40 odd percent of the vote. He's nuts. The FBI's raided his house. Sure. <laughs> anyway, that's my rant. Okay, my last bit of a, <laughs> a digital rant. I think a fun little little case study in digital comms, streaming services, both of your things, and soccer. Welcome to Wrexham, which is a terrific show on FX. Uh, Ryan Reynolds and one of his buddies, whose name I can never remember because I'm just a Ryan Reynolds fan, bought a really low division team in Wales that plays in the English English soccer system. There's a, a documentary about, about it. Uh, you can't see their games because they're not being streamed anywhere. Apparently, Reynolds and the production company have been working to try to get their games on because of all these American fans now, this team called Wrexham. Ryan Reynolds took to Twitter um, to shame services into showing games and being allowing people around the world to, to watch the games on uh, streaming, the, the games on streaming services, which I think is kind of cool. So it's like your sweet spot, but a thing I care about. So I thought it was like a thing we could share. But that look in your face says that's not something we can share. That's fine. I don't need no, to that share. That sounds great. I will put that on the list of shows to watch. Ryan Reynolds is good. I'm looking forward to Deadpool three when it finally comes out. The show is on the air. It's called Welcome. It's called Welcome to Wrexham. It's on FX. It's terrific. I'll check, I'll check it out. I got some other stuff to watch first, but I will check it out. The one other thing I want to mention before we end. Okay, I want to. I want our listeners to recognize Dave Carp has just agreed to watch a show basically about soccer. Yeah, because it's about Ryan Reynolds and Twitter. If it's all about soccer, I'll just put it off. Okay. okay. Just read the tweet thread. You'll be fine. You were going to say um, something. Yeah. What I was going to say, I just want to note. So today's Tuesday, September 13th. It'll be dropped. The episode will drop tomorrow. Apparently today, Lindsey Graham has decided to introduce a bill 
for a nationwide 15-week abortion ban. He's doing this in mid-September of an election year. But, but the question I want us to end on is, Peter, was Lindsey Graham Jopp dropped on his head? I, I think the real question is how many times? Thank you, Lindsey Graham, for just making sure that the final weeks of this election cycle can really be focused on your party wanting to criminalize abortion nationwide. Like there wasn't any real doubt about that, but we had some plausible uh, deniability. I'm not sure why he wanted to take that away. I think it's probably because he's a stupid, stupid man though. So thanks for that, Lindsay. It is amazing. You've got Republican candidates nationwide running away from Dobbs and the abortion ban. And Graham says, no, 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 this matters. We're going to do this incredibly unpopular thing that overturns. Just a messaging bill, too. Like, it's, it's a messaging bill. You don't own the Senate. But sure, if you want to have this be what we'll talk about, let's talk about it, Lindsay. The universe of things I don't understand continues to expand. The universe of things you understand is, you don't understand is truly humongous. It is vast. It is vast. I, I know my role in the Thanks universe. Um, shout out to our colleague, Ethan Porter and a couple of his colleagues for a, a new piece on factual corrections about COVID. Ethan and his colleagues found out again as they continue to find out that, that updating facts, fact-checking works, but it doesn't actually change anybody's mind. The evidence makes clear that corrections uh, eliminate the effects of misinformation on beliefs about the vaccine, but that neither misinformation nor corrections affect vaccine, vaccine intention. So a bit of good news, bad news there. Between now and our next our next episode, there people can find you on the Substacks and on the Twitters. Replug the Substack and your Twitter. DaveCarp.substack.com and at DaveCarp on Twitter. Uh, and I am, but it is there. And I am at P-L-O-G-E on Twitter. You can find the footnotes at PeterLoge.com podcast. On Medium, we are at 35 minutes, 33 seconds. We're a dog walk podcast. I just <laughs> want to note for our listeners, Peter Loge doesn't have a dog. I do have a dog, he's lovely, and um, it doesn't take 35 minutes to walk your dog. That's a really long dog walk, that's like over a mile. Eventually we'll get Peter a dog. Keep tuning in, we'll find out. Bye everybody. Bye.